This past weekend marked two milestones which have impacted us dramatically. It was one year ago. The city of Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the pandemic, was locked down as a novel coronavirus gripped that area. Canada as well marked its first case, with patient zero being diagnosed in Toronto after a man returned from China. With the world enveloped in the fight against the virus, most of us felt that a safe and effective vaccine would lead us back to normal. We now have several vaccines approved for use, but the problem is getting the doses in arms. Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. While Canada has received vaccine doses, there's been a little too much political posturing and finger pointing, which in my opinion is unbecoming of all of them, regardless of political stripe. After all, we are all in this pandemic together. We asked the question at unpublished.vote, who's responsible for the fl slow vaccination rate in Canada? The federal government garnered 62.7%, the provinces 20%. You don't care, just get it out, 14.7% and unsure, 2.7%. However, you're watching and viewing our show, you can go to unpublished.vote and make your voice heard. And uh, now we want to join or introduce our guest uh, for this evening. Laura Tremblay Watts is the executive director of CanAge. Dr. Aaron Burry is the CEO, a professional CEO with the Canadian Dental Association. Uh, Ryan Imgrund is a biostatistician with uh, the South, South Lake Regional Health Center. And uh, Patrick Saunders Hastings is joining us from Jevity. And uh, I wanna thank you all for joining us. I, I think first off, uh, our question was, uh, which level of government, where do you see the responsibility? 60, almost 63% feel it's the federal government of our viewers and listeners. Let's go around the horn and see, do you agree? Do you agree, uh, Laura? Well, like everything else in Canada, it's a division of powers and it's a division of responsibility. So the federal government's job is to buy it, to procure it, and to help ship it here. It's the province's job to decide what to do with it and how it gets into the arms of people. So in this case, there's lots of responsibility to go around. All right. Now, uh, Aaron, how, how do you feel about that? Do you think the federal government uh, is garnering too much of the weight? Yeah, certainly in terms of the provinces, we've got uh, different approaches in every single province to how this is being done. And we've got different approaches in the territories. So when you add it all together, uh, certainly for our membership, it's a bit confusing because in today's modern world, uh, information goes quickly. And so people begin to ask the question, why is it this way in New Brunswick? And, and why isn't it that way in Ontario? And there's a number of different uh, protocols and approaches that are being used across every province. So it's a bit confusing for all of us, to say the mm. least. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, uh, how do you feel? Do you think the federal government uh, is shouldering too much, not enough of the weight? I think maybe shouldering too much of the weight. I think right now what we're seeing um, with the lack of vaccines coming, I do think um, we do have to blame the federal government for some of that. Um, I think there was a you know failure to write some of that into the contract because we are seeing Europe still receiving the Pfizer vaccine, even though um, the rollout has kind of slowed down here in uh, Canada. With that being said, I think at the like, provincial uh, level, I think they were very slow at the start. I think there was so much worry about the negative 70 degrees Celsius freezers um, that they sort of forgot that, okay, once we get them there, we need to then vaccinate people with them. So I think we did all right in many provinces getting them out to the freezers, but then once they were there, it was slow pretty much all across Canada. Patrick, do you, do you agree or how do you see it? 
I think I would fall into that 14% that doesn't care and just wants the vaccines out there, right? And so to the extent that finger pointing slows down that effort, I think it really is counterproductive. Um, I also suspect that over the course of the next 25 minutes or so, I may find myself arguing in defense of various levels of government because I think some of these things, you know, there, there have been issues across the board and, and challenges. We act to something that's pretty unprecedented. But in other ways, we've performed better than I, I think is sometimes acknowledged, and then I can sort of uh, go into that in a bit more detail as we get into things. Um, but I also want to make the distinction between fast and fair vaccination, and I think that can sometimes get lost when we're talking about the speed of a vaccine campaign, um, certainly when we're comparing ourselves to the United States. And so I want to get into that a little bit more as well. So, you know, th this has become mm -hmm. a political issue and it's a public health one. Um, yeah. I, like everyone else, want the vaccines out as much as possible, so long as it's done the right way. And we can talk a bit about some of where the, uh, the shortfalls have been. All right. Now, uh, Ryan, you brought it up. Uh, a lot of blame uh, about the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine because of that need to be stored in ultra-cold temperature. Is that really fair, though? Yeah, I think what happened is, is at least when... We geared the vaccine towards freezers that were at negative 70 degrees Celsius. It meant that hospitals had to roll out the vaccine. And because it was hospitals that had to roll out the vaccine, I'm not sure if they had fair guidelines in like place um, as uh the Dr. Sanders Hastings was uh, saying in order to actually vaccinate the right people on time. And I think that's what's key. It's not about speed. It's about mm -hmm. precision. And I think that's where some of the provinces um, failed on that on the first few weeks of what they were doing. Uh, Laura, the National Immunization Advisory Committee suggested in November that long-term care should be the first priority. How has Ontario handled it so far? Very poorly. We know that they are not following the NACI guidelines, and we are seeing as well not just an increase in spread in terms of of the virus in long-term and congregate care settings, but we're now also seeing the introduction of the UK strain, and we fear other strains may come in as well to terrible effect. So it's been very challenging to try to understand why long-term care has not been a priority, but this has been a consistent issue with the Ontario government, at least, of prioritizing acute care settings over long-term care settings. It's been a policy failure, I certainly understand Ryan's point about the freezer question, but there was also good information available globally that perhaps one shot in the arm would make a significant difference and that we could stretch it out. Now, that's a bit lesson learned, but it has been a failure not to follow the NACI guidelines. Which provinces have done a better job then? We're seeing, of course, Ontario and Quebec as some of the big target zero provinces. They've got the biggest sets of outbreaks and they've got the worst situations in long-term care. So it's a bit of a challenge in terms of apples and oranges. What I would say is that there's a communications problem and there's a vaccine problem and they're not the same thing. So I would say that BC, for example, has done a good job in their communications and Ontario has done a very poor one. I think that when you look at vaccinations in some of the smaller provinces, it can be easier to vaccinate. There are fewer people and getting around those provinces are simpler. So it's not black and white. It depends what we're trying to ask. But on the whole, I think what we can say is Ontario has been bad across the board. Patrick, Alberta is well, was pausing vaccinations to sure it had enough for the second dose being the, the two dose uh, vaccine. 
Is that prudent or should all first inoculations be out first and then you wait for the second one? I'm kind of wondering about that. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a value judgment here. Um, and we've seen, for example, the UK prioritize getting the first jab in as many people's arms as possible and mm-hmm. delaying the second dose as long as they can. That's partly informed by trial data from the AstraZeneca trial, which the UK has approved and Canada has not, which found that the immune boost from the second dose, which is why we receive a second dose, is stronger with a larger space between doses. Pfizer did not test in their trial data the impact of varying the dose or the space between doses. Mm. So we, we don't have that data for Pfizer. So the question then becomes how effective is one dose? And then do we prioritize you know, optimal um, protection among a smaller group or as broad a range as possible? I tend to lean towards uh, the former. And, and experts can disagree on this. My view is that the first goal of pandemic response is to limit as much as possible severe illness and death. And so by doing that, we prioritize the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions and get their immunity as high as possible, as quickly as possible, and then get out to the broader population. And I'm not trying to dismiss the impacts of lockdowns and and the other consequences that we've Mm -hmm. seen, as well as severe health consequences in otherwise healthy populations. But the the health burden has been so concentrated in the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions that really focusing on that group, I think, to, to me, mm-hmm. makes sense on the face of it. And I did want to speak very briefly in, in defense of Ontario on one point, because I agreed with 95% of what Laura said, but it does seem like they are on track to vaccinate everyone in long-term care homes and elder care homes, including First Nations elder care homes, by February 5th, which is actually five day, or 10 days ahead of their original schedule. So while I think the treatment and care for um, seniors in long-term care homes has been fairly dismal and shameful mm-hmm. over the past year. I do think that the prioritization of a very limited vaccine supply in Ontario towards those groups is promising. Um, and that has been at the expense of the vaccination of Ontario doctors. And that's something I want to talk to, to Aaron about right now is uh, with the Canadian Dental Association, obviously dentists and technicians, etc. Um, Aaron are essential workers, but they don't know, really know where they're going to be getting or when they're going to be getting this vaccine. And let's face it, we know about this disease or this virus. You know, it's it's the mouth, it's the nose. And where's your dentist working? Right there. So what's your, your membership hearing about when they may be getting the vaccine? Well, again, we have quite a difference across the country. I think the first mm-hmm. thing is that with respect to this, Oral health workers in general were identified very early on by public health as being very, very high risk for transmission. And we kick some extraordinary measures into place uh, around the world. I mean, we have one of the highest level of infection control uh, standards you'll find anywhere in Canada. So as a result, uh, dentists have really controlled the uh, any possibility of transmission through the work that they do. But as you mentioned, uh, and I was doing it today, it's pretty up and personal and pretty much in someone's face. So in order to mm-hmm. be able to do that, we felt that oral health providers should be identified somewhere in some clear way as to what the priority was. Uh, so in many cases, uh, determining someone as an essential health worker put us behind or in the same pool as many people who had virtually no mm-hmm. risk in terms of the type of work that they were doing. Uh, the federal government essentially uh, uh, 
indicated that we're only providing sort of general guidance and it's really up to the provinces to determine it's not mandatory or binding. So that leads us back into this provincial discussion again about, okay, where would we fit in the provinces? And in some cases, the provinces were very quick and off to the thing to say, absolutely, once we get long-term care done and very high-risk people, you're in the next group with the other healthcare providers, uh, even ahead or maybe in the same thing as family medicine uh, doctors, for example. Mm. Whereas other provinces, it's still really unclear. And I think the concern began to grow. Are we at the back of the list after everybody else gets done? Because it's really that unclear in terms of what's out there. So our provinces have been working very good, well and, and around this issue. And in Ontario, they were able to get them identified in that phase one, not in a phase two or phase three. And particularly because of what we see here in Ontario with the high outbreak rates and uh, some of the challenges in terms of just trying to keep people out of emergency rooms. I know that's the kind of work I do on a daily basis. And the patients are coming in as the last year. It's more and more difficult to manage them and keep them out of out of those emergency rooms. Yeah, Ryan, getting the vaccine out is is obviously imperative. And is there a plan to have family doctors, pharmacists, that kind of a thing, you know, stepping up to give the shot to make it more accessible to everybody? There certainly should be. I think the fact now that we have the Moderna vaccine, um, I think that's important um, that it's got much better storage requirements. We can definitely have that one administered at non-hospital sites. I think that's one thing to definitely keep in mind. Um, But just in terms of um, uh, going back to those uh, Lignasi restrictions, um, I know at the federal level, um, they define phase one as being healthcare workers that are actually patient facing and then healthcare workers that are not patient facing um, that, you know, would be susceptible to the COVID-19 would be in phase number two. Um, And yet some of these provinces have, you know, sort of further defined healthcare workers, move them up to phase one, but then sometimes have actually dropped the rest of the 80 plus population and move them down to phase two. So I think that's interesting too, how, um, you know, in, Ontario, for instance, it was actually January 8th where they actually redefined what an essential caregiver was. Um, And that was, you know, about three weeks after we received the actual vaccines, they finally defined what is an essential care worker here in Ontario. And it was pretty much anyone um, that had any affiliation with a hospital, unfortunately. And if you weren't hospital affiliated, um, they didn't seem to classify you as being a medical professional. And I think that's a shame. Oh, very much a shame. Laura, you know, we talk about vaccinating residents in long-term care, and obviously Ontario's got the, the date, as Patrick pointed out, of, of uh, the 5th of getting it done. Is there a plan for seniors, though, who don't live in a retirement home, don't live in long-term care? They still live at home, but, you know, they could be 75 or 80, so they could be very susceptible as well. Now, this is one of the critical issues in our organization, CanAge, is really trying to bring this to light. Again, not to say that people who are in congregate care settings who are very frail shouldn't get vaccinated first. I think that's really well understood. 92% of all Canadian seniors live independently in their own homes in the community and will never be in a congregate care settings. 92%. And there is very little clarity around when they would get support. And of that 92%, there's a fairly designated group of them who are very frail. Many of them have multiple morbidities, cognitive impairment, and are getting home care supports. So there's a way to triage older people at home who are really only at home because they have the social supports to not be 
in mm -hmm. long-term care. Let's get to them first. We have pathways to do it. But as your point is, we need more people who are giving the vaccine out door to door, which we have seen done in other countries like the UK. Really? They go door to door to do that? There have been programs which help to identify older people in a triage level. Mm. So you can actually register, you know, your need, your age, your need, and your comorbidities, typically through a health authority or your doctor. And there is a triage system that can happen. Or you can go, if you are able, through a drive-through process. We've seen this happen in Israel. We've seen this happen in the UK. And even now, it's starting to happen in the United States. Canada has not been nimble. We've been married to this acute care idea. We, yes, are moving up from February 15th in long-term care to February 5th, but we are still on track to lose well more than 2,000 vulnerable senior residents of long-term care because we've waited this long. So we can't make the same mistake for community-dwelling seniors. We really need to push on this issue with a plan and communication at the forefront. Patrick, we see where Canada ranks in terms of uh, vaccinating the population compared to other countries that are further ahead. And uh, Laura brought up Israel and the UK. Now, they, obviously, they're much smaller land space, land, land areas than, than Canada. Is that part of the problem here? Is it the, is it the, the space that we have to deal with? So that's one, sure. Um, I, I do think that Laura is very right that we we haven't been nimble and we haven't been creative about solving problems for that. And you know, Ryan mentions the challenge with the um, stability of the Pfizer vaccine and this need to be refrigerated. Certainly that's been a challenge. Um, we have also had a backlog of healthcare professional volunteers that are willing to provide the vaccine that has not been leveraged or, or utilized to expand coverage. So there are missed opportunities across the board that could, you know, improve the situation incrementally. I think when we look at the three uh, countries that are really outperforming Canada strongly, because the, the EU is having challenges in this space as well, the UK and the United States both invested quite heavily in COVID vaccine research programs and um, and production capacity, whereas Canada does not have our own on-site capacity. I, I do think that's been an issue, and I think that's delayed our procurement. We've procured more vaccines per capita than essentially anyone in the world, three vaccines per person, but we're not necessarily getting them in a timely manner or as quickly as we would like. Israel, I also think, is a bit of an outlier, given how small it is and how far ahead of the rest of the world in emergency operations, they tend to be writ large to generalize. But I think one of the other things I would I would say to that, we have procured something on the scale of about uh, 1.2 million vaccine doses that have gone out to the provinces. And about 73% of those have actually been administered. In the United States, the equivalent number is about 50%, something like 53%. The difference is that they've procured and received over 41 million doses. And so the accusation that Canada has not procured enough per capita isn't true. We were leading the world. Uh, the accusation that we're not getting the jabs into arms also isn't true. We're outperforming the United States by quite a bit. The issue is that we're not getting the doses in as timely a manner as we would like. And so the question becomes, how, if at all, could that have been avoided? Was it earlier investment? Was it earlier engagement? Was it faster regulatory approval of other vaccine doses? So I think there's a lot of questions to be asked. But the U.S., the U.K., and Israel are all outliers in, in some ways. I think Canada could have addressed those shortcomings by being more creative and by acting faster. Um, but this, in some ways, was always going to be a bit of a challenge for us.
So Canada did not invest uh, in research and in production in terms of the vaccines, as opposed to the, as you mentioned, uh, the UK and the US? Uh, so I'm thinking of you know Operation Warp Speed and, and the Moderna Warp, vaccine. Yeah. Certainly Pfizer was not a part of that, but they have significant manufacturing in the United States. And then we think of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine in the UK. So both the US and the UK have um, domestic production capacity that Canada just does not have. Mm. Aaron, uh, you know, we, we talked about uh, your membership with uh, the, the dentist, dental associates, uh, that kind of thing. And trying to find out where they fit in with the whole vaccine, the vaccine rollout, you know, and meanwhile, we see communications people, hospital execs, not frontline people, and they're getting the vaccine before healthcare workers. And I want to know what you think, what kind of an emotional impact does that have on Canadians who are waiting for this vaccine and, and they see people who basically jump the queue? Well, I think this is one of the things that is most challenging. It's been challenging from the very beginning, which is uh, what is the whole notion of equitable distribution? What does that look like? And you then have to layer that with a couple of other things, which are one is ease of distribution. So typically in a vaccination program, if you're going to go into a hospital, you don't do two-thirds of the hospital. You vaccinate the whole thing. It's the common practice. I think where it gets uh, somewhat difficult, um, more so in the United States, is when you look at if you can drive and get access to a site, you can get it ahead of uh, many other vulnerable populations. And we haven't done that in Canada. So I think our approach is going to mean there's going to be more difficulty up front because we're trying to get to that equitable distribution. And when you're trying to do that, there are delays in getting things done, but also there are errors in judgment. And then when you move it across all the different provinces, uh, they're all doing different approaches. And we've been trying to also advise our membership that even within, say, the dental community, there are certain parts of the country where dentists, dental hygienists should be done and assistance way ahead of other parts of the country for various reasons. And those reasons being, if you're in a hot spot, we really need to be part of the solution of stopping the outbreaks and controlling this. Uh, so it's all those different layers, which I think are very difficult for people to understand. I think if that had been put out in some clear messaging right from the beginning as to how we're going to do this, it would be a lot clearer for individuals. But we've got a very... They would wear, you know, balkanized healthcare system. And even Ontario, you have 35 different approaches and trying to sort out on a daily basis who's doing what and how they're actually doing it is very, very challenging. So when you do it at the national level, again, we're back to why are they doing this in one part of New Brunswick mm. and not another part of New Brunswick? And it's hard to explain that to individuals uh, or members in particular is where are we? What does this mean? And we were identified as high risk. Why aren't they? Why aren't we more clearly identified in the in the listings that are coming out? Ryan, there's been some political posturing going on. Uh, as soon as we got the Canada got the vaccines, obviously they were being sent to the provinces. Provinces, and this during the Christmas holidays, uh, were saying that they were calling for more vaccines, more vaccines. Yet they still had it in the fridge. So I'm kind of wondering why everybody is blaming the federal government for not having the vaccines there when they haven't put them in the arms in the first place. Yeah, I think that's um, interesting to note. I think one thing that we saw here in Ontario um, is that there were some weeks that we would hear a hospital CEO talk about, we don't have vaccines, we don't have vaccines. Um, and then all of a sudden, we'd have another hospital who had those vaccines step up to help out the other hospital. Mm -hmm. And what we actually found out is not that it wasn't 
that we didn't have vaccines in Ontario, but one of the hospitals was able to get them out faster to people. Um, and that seemed to really be what it came down to was the fact that we had them at so many different sites. There were no rules about the, the distribution. Um, and as I said, the fact that they didn't even define what an essential healthcare worker was until January the 8th, really almost three weeks after hospitals received the vaccine means that they didn't really have a solid plan in order to get these vaccines into arms once they were in the actual hospitals. I think there was so much attention to that and just not the attention to what the initial rollout should be. I think we've made up for it in these last few days, last few weeks, once the media kind of caught wind of that. But for sure, the rollout at the start, the first three or four weeks here in Ontario, um, just left a lot to be like desired. Laura, I read an interesting uh, article. Uh, Dave Redmond's uh, in Alberta. He was former military, and he suggested, because he's done a lot of this stuff before uh, pandemics and emergency situations, uh, quarantining long-term care and opening society, and that way you wouldn't have the impact. Is that a missed opportunity, or is that flirting with disaster? No, that's a human rights violation and probably illegal as well. And what we've seen is the idea uh, that it's okay to lock up older people against their will in violation of both charter rights as well as flagrant violation of most legal systems. And yet we're talking about it like it's an like it's an appropriate style of discussion. I challenge you to think of any other population in Canada that we could say, you know, based on the fact that you're old and you've got challenges in your health, we've decided to isolate you and block you off from the rest of the country. We've seen physical outcomes of massive deterioration of residents. We're seeing people with increased cognitive impairment, reduced ability to ambulate, to walk around. We're seeing people who have suffered starvation and disconnection. Remember, people in long-term care Across this country, on average, 80% of cognitive impairment, 90% of that in Ontario, we have not cognitive impairment. So it's absolutely inhumane. What we need to do is provide personal protective equipment, testing, and vaccinations, and not further use ageist attitudes to isolate people away from social connections. Patrick, what, what from your perspective, will get the vaccine out uh, I guess, what was your phrase? Fast and fairly, more fast and fairly. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think one of the sort of black boxes that's useful to dig a bit further into mm. is that idea of risk, right? And so mm. what is high risk, medium risk, and low risk? And what it actually comes down to is you know, who is most vulnerable to a severe outcome or death, who is most exposed and who has the least adaptive capacity to react in an appropriate way to minimize the risk. And what we're seeing is efforts to prioritize those groups. Given limited vaccine supply, we are currently focusing on that most vulnerable group, often those with limited adaptive capacity. So those in long-term care homes that are less able to minimize their, uh, their contact rates. The problem is we're failing those who are most exposed to it, and that's our allied healthcare workers. Um, I, like everyone else in their 20s to 40s, would like to receive a vaccine, but I am in a low-risk category and I'm able to shut myself in my house and wait for my turn. And so I think being patient and allowing governments to work through those risk profiles with the government responsibility to communicate mm -hmm. those clearly and action them responsibly, I think is how we do that fairly and, and equitably.
Now, the fast question is much longer than mm. the, the next five minutes of your, of your program. So what I would say is that that involves really deep collaboration across all jurisdictions of government, as well as with the private sector. Um, I kind of structured in terms of procurement where Canada has done well, but we've failed on the time in a section, section um, distribution to provinces and then distributions to humans. And I think there are small wins that we can get across the board rather than one um, sort of golden ticket that's going to solve this whole problem. Um, and, and none of it is, is you know rocket science or or yeah. um, um, sort of reinventing the wheel, but it's good public health and good epidemiology that, that will get vaccines in terms. Well, let's uh, let's hope so, and let's hope that vaccination rate increases uh, in Canada to save lives and get us somewhere somewhere close to normal. I want to thank our guest this evening joining us on Unpublished TV. Laura Tamlin Watts is the executive director of CanAge. Dr. Aaron Burry is the uh, CEO of Professional Services, the Canadian Dental Association. Ryan Imgrund is a biostatistician with the South Lake Regional Health Center. And Patrick Saunders Hastings is with Gevity Consulting. And I thank all of you for joining us this evening. Coming up next week on the uh, Unpublished TV, what will the new Canada-U.S. relationship look like with Joe Biden in the Oval Office? That could be different. I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.